latest edition of the Albany Law School podcast. I'm Ben Myers, Assistant Director for Communications and Marketing here at Albany Law School. Today on the show, we're speaking with Professor Vin Bonventry, the Justice Robert H. Jackson Distinguished Professor of Law here at the Law School. He's also the author of the New York Court Watcher blog, which is devoted to commentary and developments at the Supreme Court, the New York Court of Appeals, and other state Supreme Courts nationwide. And we're going to be speaking with Professor Bonventry in just a little bit. As always, head over to albanylaw.edu slash coronavirus. It's getting toward the end of the semester. There's some updates there that you're going to want to know going into the winter and then coming out into the spring semester. And as always, follow us on all of the social medias and you can hear previous episodes of the podcast on all the major services or on our SoundCloud account. Let's get over and talk to Professor Bonventry. the show with Professor Bonventry. And Vin, if you just take a second to introduce yourself to everybody listening to the podcast today. My name is Vincent Bonventry, and I am a professor of law at Albany Law School. And you keep an eye on those courts for us. So we're going to go right to the biggest court in the land here. And we've had a few weeks to think about it. And Justice Coney Barrett is now actually hearing cases on the Supreme Court. And I wanted to ask you about the transition from Ruth Bader Ginsburg to Barrett. How much of a shift toward conservative rulings can we expect? And is this going to be like a watershed moment that we're going to look back at in like 20 years or something like that? Well, you know, Ben, it's always difficult to predict with too much accuracy how a justice is going to be voting, especially in these hot button questions, which is what we're really concerned about most of the time. We're not really concerned about all the very legalistic, technical questions, but the hot button ones. And with regard to that, look, we have lost Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who is the leader of the liberal wing of the court. By all accounts, Amy Coney Barrett is a conservative, So we would expect her to align herself more frequently with the conservatives, if not most of the time with the conservative justices on the court. That's Clarence Thomas, Samuel Alito, uh, Neil Gorsuch, and Brett Kavanaugh, the last two being Trump's other appointments to the court. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that instead of having five conservatives on the court and four liberals, which is what we had previously. Now that Ginsburg is gone, we have six conservatives on the court and only three liberals. That's particularly important because the swing vote, the last two terms of the court has been the chief justice, John Roberts, He has been the swing vote the last two terms of the Supreme Court. But now that there are six conservatives on the court, it won't make much difference, if any difference at all, if Roberts continues to swing and in some of these big cases votes with the liberals because the conservatives will still have five members of the court. Now, it needs to be made clear. When I'm speaking about liberal and conservative, and when commentators generally, and when people speak generally, we're not talking about judicial conservatives, right? We're not talking about judicial restraintists, those who just apply the law to the facts, those who just apply the text, those who are originalists. You know, we're not talking about that. I mean, most of the time, that's pretty nonsensical. 
what we are talking about is, are, is a particular judge a social and political conservative. So when you consider the issues, the hot button issues, whether we're talking about gun rights, whether we're talking about LGBTQ rights, whether we're talking about racial issues, abortion issues, voting rights, immigration, the death penalty, the environment, on and on and on. When we're speaking about those issues, just think, how does a liberal democratic politician generally vote? How does a conservative Republican politician generally vote? That's what we are speaking about. And the fact of the matter is that despite all the assertions and insistence that the justices will just be objective, they will be neutral, they will be nonpartisan, the fact of the matter is that on the current United States Supreme Court for the last few decades, the justices by and large have broken down into a liberal wing and a conservative wing. With Amy Coney Barrett, the conservative wing has been fortified, so it's now six conservatives versus three liberals. That will have quite an impact. Speaking of quite an impact, it sounds like there have been calls for expanding the number of justices on the court, but those have kind of cooled off as the election got frontline news and everything like that. But could or should the court be expanded under President-elect Joe Biden? Well, you know, at least at the beginning of the Republic, well, the first hundred years or so, hacking the court was as American as apple pie, right? I mean, so it was five, then it was six, then it was nine, then it was 10. I mean, back and forth and back and forth. But it's been stable since 1869 at nine members of the court. But then there is no magic to the number nine. This is nothing sacrosanct. It's not in the Constitution. I don't think there are any particular studies that show that the number nine somehow is optimal. Now, whether or not the court ought to be expanded, I think that is much, much more a political question, a question of uh, practical politics. So if the Democrats want to expand the court in retaliation for the Republicans' hypocrisy. Now, I'm not saying that the Republicans, what they did with Merrick Garland refusing to have hearings and then pushing through Amy Coney Barrett, there was anything unconstitutional or illegal about that. But, you know, on the one hand, insisting that Obama, Obama's nominee can't even get a hearing because it's during an election year. And then all of a sudden, when Trump wanted to nominate somebody to the court during an election year, then all suddenly it was perfectly okay. That's what I mean by hypocrisy. And I don't mean to be suggesting Republicans are the only ones that engage in that. But if, if the Democrats want to expand the court because this is the only way to be fair, and this is the only way to balance the court, they might want to do that, except as soon as they open the door to that, there almost certainly will be retaliation by the Republicans. And then where is this going to end? So this is political judgment. And you know, some of these folks have a heck of a lot better political judgment than I do. <laughs> 
Well, sticking with executive and the court for just a second, and we're recording on November 18th for posterity's sake, do you foresee Supreme Court getting involved in any of the cases that have been popping up about the election between now and Inauguration Day in January? So far, you know, none of this litigation has been terribly meritorious. In fact, as you know, all of them or virtually all of them have already been thrown out of court. In fact, I am wondering, you know, as somebody who taught legal ethics for a long, long time, I am wondering if some of the lawyers bringing this litigation ought not to be penalized for bringing frivolous lawsuits. I mean, we know some of these lawsuits are just simply nonsensical. Now, if there is a serious issue and it gets through a couple of lower courts, it may be that the United States Supreme Court will want to step in and just end all of it and say, look, the election was conducted, we have a winner, and that's the end of it. But Bush versus Gore, you know, several years ago, was such an embarrassment for the court. And not just because George W. Bush ended up being the winner as a result of the Supreme Court's decision, but because, you know, the rationale, the analysis was just an embarrassment. In fact, it was so bad that the court itself, in its opinion, said that this is not a precedent for anything else. Right. So I'm pretty sure that the Chief Justice John Roberts does not want to engage in something again like Bush versus Gore, which is really a scar upon the reputation of the court. So if there's something super important, maybe they'll step in. But other than that, I don't think so. And like I said, we're recording on November 18th. So if you're listening later in the future, these things might have changed. We we can't predict the future right. as much as we try here on the Albany Law School podcast. Right. <laughs> Do you want to shift over to the Affordable Care Act, though? That one has been in front of the court quite a bit lately. And there were arguments last week in California versus Texas. There's so many details in all these kind of cases. But with broad strokes, what can we expect out of that case? And then maybe what can we expect for the Affordable Care Act and the Supreme Court moving forward? Well, let, let's back up a little and, and see what happened. There was a individual mandate. And originally in National Federation versus Sibelius, several years ago, Chief Justice Roberts cast the deciding vote and wrote the opinion to say that the individual mandate and the penalty for refusing or failing to get insurance, he said that was a tax. And therefore, Obamacare was a valid exercise of Congress's taxing and spending power. Well, recently, the Congress, with Trump's signature, they excluded the individual mandate. That's not there anymore. So on the one hand, it can be argued, and it has been argued, the very foundation for the validity of Obamacare, that is the so-called tax, right? that's gone. That's gone. And without that foundation, the whole thing falls apart. So the whole thing is now invalid. On the other hand, 
The other argument is that there is a doctrine of severability, that what judges try to do is if a particular part of the law is invalid, you excise that, you take that out, but you save the rest of the law if you can. And in this particular case, what's very, very noteworthy is that when Congress decided to eliminate the individual mandate, that so-called tax, they did not, they did not repeal Obamacare. They didn't have the votes to repeal Obamacare. And I think that will weigh the most heavily upon a majority of the judges, justices. And I am certainly expecting that a majority will vote to uphold Obamacare to, to uh, save it. Final one here for the Supreme Court. And just as with everything in the world in 2020, it's been a wild year. It's been a wild year oh, even yes. on the Supreme oh, Court. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Beyond what we've talked about already, though, what are some cases or developments on the court that we should take away from 2020? Well, 2020 was a blockbuster year. There are so many important cases. You looked at them and say, boy, just one or two of them would have made for a blockbuster year. But we had several cases with regard to church and state in which the court is increasingly, a majority of the court is increasingly accommodating religion as opposed to, which turns out to be most of the liberals on the court, who think that that's a violation of the separation of church and state. You've had several of those cases. Presidential immunity, right? You had two big cases where a majority of the court said the president is not above the law. You had abortion restriction cases coming before the United States Supreme Court. On, on those cases, you had the chief uh, justice siding with the liberals, even though in previous cases, right? He had voted the other way. You had that very, very important LGBTQ case regarding whether or not sex discrimination also includes discrimination against LGBTQ persons, and the court ruled that it did. So really, really important cases. Beyond that, as we mentioned before, this really has become Chief Justice John Roberts' court. He's become the swing voter. He has been in the majority almost 100% of the time with regard to all these very important hot-button questions. In fact, my own calculation is 97% of the time. That's extraordinary. And because of that, what it means is that in many of these cases, where one might expect, because it is a conservative court, there's more Republican conservative justices on the court than liberal Democrats, oftentimes what we get are unexpected results because the chief justice has joined with the liberals. So for example, whether we're talking about the California pandemic restrictions on churches, you had the chief justice voting with the liberals to uphold those restrictions. What about DACA, right? Deferred action on childhood arrivals. He voted with the liberals and he wrote the opinion for the court saying, look, the Trump administration can get rid of DACA. 
but do not come into my court and lie. And for that reason, because, well, he didn't say lie, I'm saying that, he called it post-litigation rationality, <laughs> right? And he had done the same thing the year before, if you remember, with the citizenship question on the census form. He didn't say that the Trump administration can't put a citizenship question on the census form, but he said, don't come into my court and lie as to why you're doing that. And so he voted with the liberals on that. And so many other cases like this, which is why he was in the majority, and it really has become his court. Moving over to New York here, a little bit closer to home. In October, the unified court system announced that it declined to extend the terms of 46 state judges who are 70 or older for budgetary reasons. They're going to save a lot of money on the budget. Yeah. This was a story that was overshadowed by COVID and the election. But as someone who watches the courts very closely, I have three questions. We'll start with this one. Sure. Is this a big deal? And if so, how are these judges going to be replaced? Well, it's a big deal because the caseload continues to expand in New York, and it just means that we have that many fewer judges to be presiding over the cases. So that means a heavier workload for the others. Beyond that, what it also brings to the fore is what I think is a totally moronic law in New York that these judges must retire at the age of 70. At the trial level, they can be extended for a couple of years at a time until I believe they're 76. But, you know, by the time these judges are 70, I, I saw this at our highest court, the New York Court of Appeals. These judges are reaching their stride. They're at their peak. I saw this happen with Hugh Jones. I saw it happen with Chief Judge Kay. I saw it happen with Chief Judge Jonathan Littman. I saw it happen with so many of these other judges. It is insane. These judges are just getting real, getting to be really great appellate judges at that age. And then we knock them off. I have to say, as a background matter, when I clerked for Judge Matthew J. Jason on the New York Court of Appeals, the case came to him as to whether or not this mandatory retirement at the age of 70 was valid. I pled with him. I begged with him to write an opinion that it was invalid, especially because he was going to have to leave the court the very next year because he was turning 70. But he was a real straight shooter, totally honest. He wrote the opinion for the court actually upholding the mandatory retirement age. Not saying that it was a smart thing, but just saying that it was constitutional. So this seven, you know, this knocking judges off has several different components to it, which makes it very, very important. Could we see a big change in how rulings go or just the speed of things? Like what is kind of the reverberations of this? You were talking about uh, bigger workload, does that mean we get decisions at a slower rate? Just to, or some of the logistics. I think that, yes, I think you're right. I think that's the only thing that we're going to see. It's going to take longer and longer. And it may be that the judges that remain will really want to push and pressure much more to get plea agreements so they don't have to take cases to trial, which of course 
takes much more time and much more of the resources of the judiciary. So we may see changes along those lines. Could this be an opportunity to diversify the bench a little bit more in New York? Well, not necessarily because eliminating these 46 judges doesn't necessarily open up any new uh, vacancies. It's you know, Remember, these are just judges who already have reached retirement age and they're allowed to stay on, but that doesn't necessarily expand the number of judges who are allowed under our laws. So no, I don't think so. Final question here before we get to the lightning round, and now we're getting much closer to home. New York a Court of Appeals Judge Leslie Stein, proud Albany Law alum, is planning oh, yeah. to retire next June. And Governor Cuomo, another alum, has nominated all the judges on that highest court in New York and will do so again for Judge Stein's position. But what are your reactions to Judge Stein stepping down and what potentially or who potentially could be stepping into her shoes? She didn't need to step down, right? She's not 70 years of age. And in fact, if she remained on the court till she was 70, it would not be until 2026. So I think all of us who watched the court were very, very surprised and saddened by the fact that she's leaving. And of course, hoping that it doesn't suggest that there's, there's any problems. But she is what I would call, you know, you oftentimes say, oh, this is a judge's judge. I think with Judge Stein, she was a lawyer's judge. And what I mean by that is, if you had a complicated case, you were a lawyer who was trying to explain a very complicated case to the court, I think you would hope perhaps that Judge Stein got the opinion and she was the one to unravel the complexity. She did that an awful lot of times. So for example, there were certain cases where she wrote the majority of the opinion for the court. I don't even know what the subject matter is. There was one case on, get this, cross-jurisdictional tolling of the stature of limitations on a foreign judgment. What about this one? Stamping fees for excess line policies. Pro rata time on the risk allocation of insurance coverage. Vertical exhaustion of triggered primary and umbrella excess layers. I have no clue what those things are. And she's the judge that got the majority opinion to unravel that. You know, maybe my colleagues like Christine Chung or Pat Connors know what the heck those things are, but I have not a clue. But Judge Stein is one of those judges you can argue to, and she knows how to resolve those kinds of complicated questions. We're headed over to the lightning round. Are you ready for the lightning round? Oh, I'm ready. Go All ahead. right. First one up here in the lightning round. It's been a unique fall on campus this, this semester. As a professor, how has the semester gone for you? What's it been like with teaching remotely, students coming on and off campus, that kind of stuff? Well, you know, you have to get used to it. And I think I've gotten good. I've gotten a little better. And my students have certainly gotten good at it and better. So I've thoroughly enjoyed it. I would much rather be in person with my students. But this has worked out fine. And the school has been very, very supportive. 
All right, now you get to play the judge here in the next lightning round question. We have Thanksgiving coming up, and I need a <laughs> ruling on what the best side dish is. Here are the litigants. Mashed potatoes, stuffing or dressing, depending on what you call it, cranberries, squash, or baked beans, or like a bean casserole kind of thing. Well, the litigants didn't make this argument but I'm putting this in my opinion anyway. Eggplant Parmesan. Oh, wow. <laughs> from, from way <laughs> out there. Thanksgiving dinner. My father would always ask for eggplant Parmesan, and my mother would say, but this is an American holiday. And my father would say, the Puritans wish they had eggplant Parmesan, <laughs> so we would get it. <laughs> Final one here on the podcast. We ask it to all the guests, and the floor is yours. Is there anything you want to say to the law school community as we head into the end of the semester and then the new year, ultimately? Yes. You know, I've been here for 31 years now. I was thrilled when I got here. I'm thrilled to be here now. Albany Law School really is a special place. You know, our students are bright. They're enthusiastic and nice. You could ask all our faculty and staff. Our students are really, really nice. And the faculty, you know, again, after 31 years, there are many with whom I've become very professionally close and admire the heck out of them. So, you know, I'm thrilled to be part of them. And then the staff, the staff has been so helpful and accommodating to me. Now you're going to say, okay, Bond Ventry is going on and on. I really mean this. I think Albany Law School is a very special place, and I'm really lucky to be here. Professor Bond Ventry, thank you so much for being on the Albany Law School podcast. Hope to have you back on really soon. Thank you so much, Ben. <laughs> <laughs>